0: Welcome back to Unstandardized English. I uh, hope you like the new theme song there. Uh, So first of all, I'm just trying something new. Um, Just wanted to see if that fit the tone more. I had this like lo-fi hip-hop thing. And there was a time when I was doing a lot of these after, uh, you know, being tired or whatever. And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't like recording these at night. So I'll try to do them at different times of day, and that'll be better. But I just wanted something that fits it, because, like, you know, I get really hyped on this show. It's not necessarily an exciting show like some other things, but um, that's why I changed it. Anyway, this is Unstandardized English. Uh, My name is Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. Okay, that's better. So uh, we talk about the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized on this show. And today I'm going to talk to one of my my good friends, honestly. I say that sometimes on this show, and it's true. Uh, the only problem sometimes is that I'll say that someone's my good friend in 2020, and then, you know... Time passes, and we don't talk as much anymore, not because there's an issue in the friendship, but just because we're mostly not in the same place. Dr. Jennifer Delfino, who you're going to hear from in this episode, used to live here in New York, but she moved for good reason, um, for a better career opportunity, and now lives in the Midwest. Um, So we did meet, unlike me and some of my other friends, but now, you know, we're rarely going to get a chance to see each other going forward. Oh, well. But the fact of the matter is she's someone that I actually do trust on these issues, not just because of her scholarship, and we'll talk about that. She's another one of uh, the race and language people that I bring on the show, although we're we're not going to talk about language like, you know, teaching English, right, but language like, you know, linguistic analysis and uh, things like that. Um, and we're going to talk about white allies and the language of white allies on social media. Um, you know, both an article she wrote about it in 2021 and sort of what's happened since then what she might have noticed since then on social media because I have a lot of thoughts about white people I think you know that Uh, but most of my work is about white folks and honestly most people listening to this are white and I don't mean that people are bad I mean I think that there is no reason that a particular person who wants to do a good job with racism can't do a good job I didn't say it was easy but there's no justification for not doing a good job um there are reasons not to do a good job, because it's hard. But there's no excuse, truly, in this day and age. If you want to do a good job, the information is out. There's a lot, of, is this too much information out there, which is part of the problem? There used to not be enough information, because they didn't want to sell the stuff. Now there's too much information, and it's hard to pick, right? What book do you read? Uh I would read things by people of color. Um, although there is, of course, the conundrum, and this is, uh, I just watched the movie, American Fiction, uh, uh, that, you know, they necessarily want to listen to us, right? So then what's what's the thing? Do you read work on racism by white people because they're the most palatable to you? Now, first of all, if you're reading, it shouldn't really matter, right, um, who the messenger is, but still. Or do you read works by people of color that are really, really challenging and, and just push you, right? well if, but then if that makes you feel sort of discouraged what do you do do you write, read books by people of color that are a little bit more palatable um and you know i try to stay in between those last two options obviously i'm not white i can't be in that that option of a white person but i just mean like i try to write in a way that's accessible and use this podcast also in a way that's accessible uh so that the but the ideas are still challenging Right, like I'm in the process of working on a book, as you heard in the last episode, on neurodivergent students of color, and there's stuff in there that I think that a lot of white teachers have not heard before. You know, the connection between racism and ableism. If they find that boring, then they're not going to do a good job at the thing that they're supposed to be doing, which is taking care of neurodivergent students of color. Uh, it's also it's only a few pages. Like I think they can read those 15 pages. Um, but on the other hand, I can't really go whole hog like I do in some of my academic work. I go a lot harder in my academic work, but on the other hand, nobody reads academic work. <laughs> so I have a, a small, fervent fan base of like 300 people. Um, and I write my academic stuff and I do this podcast for them, for you. I thank you all for listening. This is the 110th episode, somehow. Um, and yeah, so... Anyway, we'll talk to Dr. Delfino about her work in a second. I thank you all for listening. If you contribute to the Patreon, I appreciate that. The link will be in the show notes as ever. Does anybody read the show notes? Who knows? And uh, we're now going to hear from Dr. Delfino. All right. Thanks for being here with us, folks. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Delfino. We're going to talk about white people, but before we talk about white people, uh, welcome. Um, If you could give us a little bit about sort of who you are and some of the other work you've done before we get into that aspect of things. I'm glad to be here with you this afternoon, and uh, yeah.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin. It's nice to be here. Um, We've been talking about doing this for a long time, so I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so my name is uh Dr. Jennifer Delfino. Um, I am currently a professor at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, um, in the anthropology department. Uh my I'm a linguistic anthropologist, um, and my research studies the relationships between language and processes of racialization. Um, studying whiteness, um, specific specifically um you know ideas about anti-racism um progressiveness um you know solutions to racial violence that sort of thing um and a study of white allies is just one piece of my research um i've also studied uh schooling uh language and schooling experiences among african american preadolescents um and early teens in washington dc um, and I'm currently doing a study on Filipino Americans and ideas about, um, the relationship between race, language, and cultural authenticity. Um, what connects all of these projects? Um, I'm just really interested in how racialization gets folded into, um, you know, processes that are not really understood to be racist, um, but which end up being racist, if that makes any sense. I think that's kind of the crux of my white allies piece. And so using language to uncover these processes is really important because if you do it, you know, the way that I that you could be trained to do it in, say, linguistics or linguistic anthropology more specifically, um, you start to see that things aren't always what they seem. And I think the bigger piece of all of this research is understanding that, you know, liberal democracy, the way that we think about difference, the way that we think about diversity and equality are actually very still entrenched in white supremacy and um, white. this idea that I call white virtue, which is that white people are good, um, you know, <laughs> in the sense of doing – if they're abiding by the rules of what they think is democracy um, and equal participation, then white people are good at, at their core. Um, but those ideas are very much – um, I think sense, steeped in a sense of entitlement and superiority that don't
0: register as such, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense to me. That's what You're I You're right. It's you know, <laughs> the about this stuff, but it even, this other people. <laughs> right, yeah, it's the people, right? Um, I mean, yeah. you know, although I hope if people have been listening to the show for a while, they would understand some of that. I mean, obviously, not necessarily the work you've done, but the sort of ideas, you know. Um,
1: yeah, pretty abstract, so hopefully we can unpack that in the time that we have.
0: You know, I think that, uh, because a particular piece, which I'm not going to remember, the, I have in front of me, but I can't remember the name. You know, academic titles, but, um, the, <laughs> it's a horribly obnoxious one too. It, um, <laughs> the chronoscope is, is in there, right? Uh,
1: uh, white Allies in the Semiotics of Wokeness,
0: colon, racial linguistic chronotopes of white virtue. <laughs> Ernest Hopes, not Scope, right. Uh, yeah. So, but anyway, what I found interesting about it is yeah. um, you know, it's something that people have remarked upon to me, and right when you were presumably looking at it, you know, in the end of the last decade and around the beginning of this one, or I don't know how long it took from writing to publishing, but whatever. Um, you know, what I've noticed since 2020 or so. Right. And there's been this sort of. I don't know what the right word is. Divergence, I guess, because there was this moment where everybody was talking about things and then there's a backlash and that happens every single time these things happen. But uh that's not my concern. And frankly, I don't really find white conservatives very interesting to analyze. Um I mean, that's what we can let Maureen do that. Right. But. <laughs> yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. <laughs> I guess it depends on who's doing the studying.
0: Um yeah. anyway. <laughs> but uh I do think that the biggest barrier is what you've been looking at, right? The it's not to say that they're as much of uh as damaging as, as sort of white nationalist folks, right? Like is like to be clear, that's still worse. <laughs> but, but like to me, there's always going to be a group of people who are on the real like far extreme that really want to destroy people who aren't like them. That's not to excuse it. It's just like whatever the extreme is. Yeah.
1: It's less violent for sure, but it's, it's terribly insidious is how I would describe it.
0: Yeah. And because there's this belief in their own heroism or virtue. That's right. right, right, Uh, right. And then, but they don't even necessarily know that that's what they believe. So oh, it just gets really – you have to spend so much time getting them to see what's there that by the time you've gotten them to see it, how much time has passed and how much could have been done and how much, you know, time is wasted and so forth.
1: I guess that's kind of the catch-22. I mean, the whole point of the White Allies piece is that White Alley ship or, or, um you know – being a good white person who's anti-racist is predicated on this idea of educating oneself to be not racist. But education and specifically self-education only get you so far. Right? So like going to a rep by saying going to a rally and taking pictures and saying I learned so much from the people who are protesting here, Black Lives Matter, you know, like it's it's performative. Um and people what happens is I think a lot of white allies walk away feeling like they're being good people and doing something but then you know, they go home to their like neighborhoods and they do something like, you know, microaggressive, you know, to like their black neighbor, right? <laughs> well, um, so it's like,
0: I yeah. think about that a lot because I said I started to realize, and I can't even remember what I said three years ago, but, um, you know, people putting up a Black Lives Matter sign and not having any black neighbors. Right, right. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Uh, if you really just figured things out in 2020, you are you live in that place. Yeah, I'm not right. saying you got to sell your house today and move tomorrow, right? I'm not I'm not trying to be ridiculous about it. But like, if you're making the choice, as most people do at some point in their adulthood, about where to live, and you're and especially if you have kids, right? But honestly, and you're thinking you about where
1: to send your kids to school. Like, well, a lot yeah. Of these well, I mean, are not same. gonna are the same people who like you know they have the When they have been presented with the option of, say, um, I don't know if integration is the right word, but mixing up schools and having the opportunity to go to schools with black, the black kinds of black people and black children that they supposedly advocate for. They just they shut down and they oh, I can't do that. You know, like I can't have my I, I understand what the problem is, but I can't have my kids being around. Those kinds of kids because X Y Z stereotypes, right? So you know,
0: because there's there's this there's this sort of mention I mentioned it catch two, right? Because like, you know, there's a tension in between in the good schools conversation between like, if someone says, depending on who the someone is, mm. you know, we need to fund schools low like like you know imaginary school that's mostly black and the local proposal is to, like, bus, or some, it's not, it's not busing now, but the version of mixing people up, like, in a magnet way.
1: Well, sort of, I mean, now it's like charter schools take over half of a quote-unquote empty school, and then those are mostly white, and they get, like, these nice things that the kids in the other half of the school don't get, and they call it mixed schooling or whatever. So it's, again, it's insidious.
0: (laughs) So they, you know, people will say, well, we need to support the people in the schools that they're in Mm -hmm. instead of forcing them forcing basically forcing my kids to be in school with them because they don't have they haven't been supported and I'm just like the first the first five words you said are not untrue like yes we do need to support right. that school right yeah. but like
1: but not the what are you they're...
0: doing about it <laughs>
1: yeah right exactly um and this is what I don't know it's hard like it's just hard so the other kind of major piece of white allyship is that Structural racism, structural patterns, when, pe- when people are presented with the opportunity to actually participate in structural changes that make an impact, like rearranging schooling, they don't want to do it, right? Like, if it's about, if it's reading, like, white fragility, a white person's like, great. An ally's like, great, this is exactly, you know, um, the kinds of things that I understand that I'm talking about, and I'm going to go teach other people about it and tell other white people how they're racist so that they can no longer be racist. It misses the point of structural racism, Right. Like it's not about your intent to go self educate and be a better person you know it's it's this it's this idea that you can kind of like morally lift yourself out of racism, which goes against like kind of every like anthropological approach to or or even social science approach to talk about racism. It's ideology, which is not something that you're necessarily aware of it's it's structural, which is not something you could change on an individual level unless you're willing to participate in some sort of like larger. Like, you know, not to this is such a worn out example, but if, you know, even being on board with like affirmative action is not necessarily enough. Right. But that's an example of like a structural change, you know, like putting people of color in decision making roles where you don't get to control the conversation like that is something that continuously gets steered away from. You know, and then people move towards the more performative stuff, where inclusion becomes about like, oh, making sure that those folks are sitting at the table, but maybe they don't have a voice. Right. It,
0: it, you know, it's like a, it's like Captain Planet. Right. We got one from here, and we got one from here, and one from here. Is that a Marvel one, thing? That was, it was a cartoon from like the late '80s, right? Captain oh, Planet. I have
1: no idea. <laughs> I didn't. It I was want... like
0: an envi- it was like an environmental cartoon that was actually okay. started by Ted Turner. Oh. Uh, but, like, it was... Because back then, every cartoon was like, you need to do recycling, right? Um, not that they shouldn't. Like, that's not, like, bad. Uh, yeah. But it was just sort of, like, a thing for a while there. Um, and every... Because every celebrity was into that, they were all on it, like, the... Interesting. Like, the the goddess was Whoopi Goldberg. I, I don't know. Oh. Um, the African was played by LeVar Burton, right? Really? Like, they had one, one from African... For African. One... Just watch watch the ending credits because it's just like from China, from this, from the Soviet Union, which shows you what year it's from, right? Um. So anyway, the point is they had like we have one from every place, right? Um. Or it's like Disney princesses or something, (laughs) right? You know, or when I think about my my previous two, I guess it's two jobs ago now. Um, you know, they did. If you looked at the entire staff, have a diverse staff, but what did those people? Do they were mostly like the cooks?
1: I'm gonna say Uh, yeah.
0: uh, Or they were the
1: secretary? Even the right word, like an an administrative administrative
0: assistant or executive assistant, depending on how far up they are in the organization, right? Um, right. And you know, and I say this a lot, and people who listen to this podcast and roll their eyes might say this, but like I had more white colleagues named Laura or Lauren than colleagues of color above, because I was at a managerial level, like above like the lowest levels. Who right? so
1: rolled their eyes when you said
0: that? <laughs> no, I'm saying. I feel like people listening to oh, this I podcast see. are going to roll their eyes because oh, I've okay. it a bunch of times. <laughs> but no, it's just like we kept hiring Laura. It literally kept hiring a woman named Laura and Lauren. Like it was like, again? Again? <laughs> I Man. mean, I have no problem with those individual women because actually – They specifically were fine, but it was just a funny trend.
1: No, it's yeah. So I have another friend. He happens to be a black man as well, working in a high level position. Um, you know, Princeton educated um, for undergrad. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. Two seconds.
0: I mean, okay, my, sorry. Dog's been, my dog's been in the background of the show before too, right? <laughs> <laughs> not in the room. I'm not um, in the building the apartment with him right now. So
1: Yeah, so and then he got a master's, um, you know, and he worked in politics for a very long time. Um OEOB, um, old executive office building, you know, so high level stuff, right? And um there there's all kinds of ways in which inequalities get reproduced. My point being that, you know, white women named Laura or Lauren are Also kind of funneled, you know, well-meaning people, right, like the kind we're talking about, get funneled into these, you know, fields that are viewed by the white men who are in charge as, like, appropriate for their skill level and interest. So his point was that a lot of the education policy stuff gets decided by white women who have kind of enjoyed the privilege of going into internships where they don't need to be paid who want to do good in the world but don't really have the perspective or the life experience or the hard knocks to really understand what kinds of decisions will affect black children from very impoverished neighborhoods in certain ways. And so, you know, again, it's it's like it's not necessarily people going out to not do good or or to intentionally do harm, but, again, like even if the – I think that even if these women – you know, engaged in the work of self-education or whatever, it's not going to change anything unless they're making different decisions, um, you know, at, at that level in, in their jobs. And it's it's also it's also sucks because in some ways they're also not in a position to have a voice because they're they're deliberately put into those fields because it's seen as not really mattering. Right. They're like kind of funneled away from the the center of decision making. At least in in politics, or that's how he that's how this friend explained it to me. So I don't know. I wonder what you think about that
0: too. Yeah, I think a lot of, and this is the, the first article I ever wrote was me musing on something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like academic article, right? Um, I talked about sort of the altruistic shield thing that like huh. these pe- people in in professions that are seen as like socially good. Yeah. Sort of feel as though they don't necessarily have to go any farther because they already do the social work. They already do the That's nonprofit, right. They already do the yeah. teaching, right? right? And it's just like, but I'm a teacher, but I'm a social worker, but I'm a whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's, it's, it's not just women, but it is often like women who are in these positions. And so you get the sort of reflexive, well, I'm better than these people, mm. which is a which shows up in your article, right? You know, well, I'm better than these people, so yeah. why won't you give me the credit for that?
1: Right? right. And yeah.
0: I'm, I'm clear that like, sure, if you set the bar on the floor, I guess you are <laughs> better than that, so. I'm not going to pretend. And because I do think like in terms of like capitalism (laughs) and stuff is one thing, but in terms of like race stuff, like, yeah, you know, sides aren't necessarily exactly the same. And I don't I think it's a little bit simplistic to say that just because one side isn't all that great at supporting us is not is the same as like actively trying to kill us or whatever. But Uh like. Right. The. The way that the conversations happen are just so exhausting. And this is, I've been in nonprofits because I, you know, although I do teach on the side here and there, like I've been in nonprofits rather than academia for like 10 years. Right. So like, that's the fields that I've been in. And these are the people that I work with. And although my current job is better Mm. and it's, it's as simple as what you said, the leadership is actually diverse. Right. Right. It always starts at the top, you know, like the CEO is a black man. And you know, half of the C-suite or E-suite or whatever is 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 people of color and women and various things and and so forth. And like, it just there is something about being comfortable working in the, in an organization where the decisions are being made by people who look mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And well, you and know, who think different who thinks yeah. different,
1: right? It that's important right. too. You could totally, you know, this happened at BMCC all the time, like. We had black and Latino and Latina, maybe not Latina, but black and Latino presidents, right, um, who just, you know, maintain status quo. You know, like the the most recent president convened a race, equity, and inclusion committee that I was a part of, and it just evolved into performative gestures, you know, like the, the biggest thing that they could say, well, that's not true. So the the most co- collectively organized thing they did was promote like a social justice week, which was just like a conference, Right. Probably like the most impactful thing that happened was that a faculty member took it upon herself to create the Brezi program, which was you know, basically black studies at BMCC, which amazingly, you know, BMCC's had mostly black and or Latinx students for, you know, since its inception, probably, and they just started a black studies program all because of like one faculty member. So point being, you know, you, you have like this leadership that looks diverse. Or that presents as diverse, but then they're just there to maintain status quo, right? Like we would have conversations about changing public safety practices and so on and so forth, and this this president would just kind of defend what they were already doing, which was acting like
0: police essentially. So, it you know what's interesting about that is that I got a <laughs> sort of a window into this because at my last job I worked not for I wasn't on the academic side I was on the staff side mm-hmm. of the research foundation of CUNY, right? Like when the one time we actually hung yeah. out, yeah. that's where we, yeah, I, I remember working, that.
1: Right? Yes. And it, I remember it being very frustrating for you.
0: Yeah. That's why I left. So, you yeah. know, um, and I've said a million times, it's just really funny that I applied for the job that I have now the day I met you. So, um, I didn't know it about that.
1: That's so funny. Yeah.
0: Uh, so anyway, Back when all the stuffs happened the shutdowns and all this, and, and it's mid 2020, and we had all these conversations. Everybody had conversations, right? Now, all these people bringing people do webinar and all this stuff. 20, which and I'm not.
1: 2022,
0: yeah. No, 20... no, no, I'm saying that, that, um, what I'm about to describe is in 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so there was going to be, um, I forget what parade it was. Maybe it was a pride parade or something, or or so, so, some sort of parade was happening. Or March. Right. And yeah. I don't know that it was necessarily about Black Lives Matter, but people were holding Black black Li- People were going to be holding Black Lives Matter banners during it, understandably mm-hmm. at, for, at the time. And so we were talking about this in one of the calls with the president of. For, for reasons that you understand how CUNY is weird. I worked for RF CUNY, but somehow I also worked for CUNY STS. Right, so the president it's we would hear from. Funny thing. Yeah, yeah. So, but so te- so like the president of Kuni SPS was like technically like several levels above me. Anyway, so we had a call with him. I don't have a problem with him. Uh, he's just a very old white man, and he wasn't do- necessarily do anything. He, he just seemed befuddled, <laughs> right? Like, and I'm not saying that's okay, but like I didn't expect.
1: Basically, white mediocrity. You know, you-, yeah. you have like these high-ranking people who have no idea what they're doing, so they just like befuddle
0: around. <laughs> But that's the thing, though. What I thought, what I thought, one of the com- the members of my committee. Now I'm getting such sat- ADHD. Get on the chat, Justin. But is that one of the members on committee was an old white man, and when mm-hmm. I met him, I was like, "What's this guy? Who's this fucking guy?" Right. But like, I went for it in my first paper for him, and he kept encouraging me. And so like, to me, and I I'll, I'll, this is sort of the point I wanted to get to eventually, but you know, whatever. Uh, is that when you approach a conversation with someone who you're just like, I don't know about this person and they expect you to be like, I understand why you wouldn't necessarily trust me in this. To me, that goes a longer way than posting the Facebook picture of being at the rally or something like that. I completely agree.
1: You know? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: but I didn't tell the story I wanted to tell because <laughs> I was trying to tell a story, which oh, I couldn't focus on, which is that in this conversation was a bunch of the higher ups, right? And, there was a woman there who I believe was a lawyer yes. and she tried to stop us from putting up the Black Lives Matter banner. We being the school, not me, right? Oh,
1: um, yeah, they always have those.
0: Right. And but you know, like a nine
1: person who's really there doing PR. Right. And
0: so we said, but why? Mm-hmm. And she said, because it's not inclusive of all people. And so, oh. you know, we've all, we, all heard, we don't need to even go into that nonsense, right? But the point I'm making is that like, even if you have some people who, you know, look the right way, and she didn't, she was a white lady, but I'm just saying still, uh, <laughs> excuse me, they, they're gonna be mixed in with people who are doing shit like that, right? Because like, it's gonna be that, that like, the consensus is to try to move things forward. And I'm not saying they're always going to do it correctly. At my organization, they don't always do everything correctly. I know that. But, like, that has to be the commitment. One of the things I've appreciated about my current job, and I'm not saying everything that we do is what I agree with, but, like, I need a job. So uh mm-hmm. is that, like, we right when I joined, there was a merger happening, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately my company sort of was the one eating the other one. We didn't like do a bunch of layouts or anything. We just became we just sort of came together. Yeah. And it's been a whole thing, right? Which is a separate conversation. But one of the things that we were all worried about in my company, because my company was of the two, the one that was very outwardly committed to the diversity and all of that. We were the ones with the the more diverse leadership team and so forth. And so we're just like, What's gonna happen? So when it turns out when the merger happened, our CEO became the CEO of both, and I was like, All right, that's good, I guess. Right? And then We were very clear, and to not get too boring about it, the other company does a a lot of working with small businesses, and my side of the company works with sort of like black entrepreneurs, right? Not just black, but like – so so similar but not the same thing, right? But ours is more explicitly people of color, and then small businesses, which we were – which were often people of color, but okay. not explicitly so. And mm-hmm. the point is the other people had sort of altruistic thing. It's like we were pushing them like, you guys have to think critically about who we're supporting here, right? Not just it has to be a person of color, which obviously is not what we were saying, but are they doing equitable things in their organization? It could be a white person leading the company, but are they treating their workers well? Oh,
1: absolutely. They, you yeah. Know, that
0: sort of thing. And they were like, yeah. but we're supporting a small business. This is inherently good. Right. And and I, have so I know, I know. I'm say saying this is what they said. Uh, oh, yeah. and then a bunch of them quit, which was surprising, but ultimately it was for the best yeah. because like, oh, it could have been that that mindset won out, but it lost. And that was what surprised me in a good way about where I work is that the sort of like, it's inherently good in a color evasive nonsense way. Cause yes, of course it's not inherently good. I love uh,
1: color evasive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, and they didn't. So that and like we are, <laughs> I don't want to say color a, forward, but it's something can we I talk about. Talk you know? on
1: that for a second. That's a yeah. great because I think color blindness really um kind of belies how whiteness and you know race doesn't exist stuff works because you have to do a lot of ideological work to avoid talking about race and acknowledging race and seeing where it happens, right? So like color blindness suggests that people, it, it, it's part of the problem, right? Like it suggests that it could be fixed once you learn to see, for example, you know, metaphorically speaking through education. It's not that people are stupid. Color evasive, I think, is so much better because it conveys the work that goes into being, to taking a colorblind stance, right? Um, you have to do a lot of avoiding, you know, to not see and to not talk about the things that happen on the ground, at least in my
0: opinion. It's harder and harder. I mean, the one thing, because part of what I wanted to talk to you about is, like, you did all of that, you know, in the late 20-teens, right, mm-hmm. for the the research. And, you know, we're still looking at social media, and it's been interesting to think about what's happened in the time since then. Uh, what I found myself, because I am, you know – Known is the wrong word, but the way the reason people pay any attention to me is because I've talked about race and racism on social media, right? Or you know, in the, eventually the books. But the point was the people on social media knew me from social media, right? And you know, I only get a certain corner of things, right? I wasn't doing research. I wasn't in the. I was in some Facebook groups, but I wasn't doing it for that reason, right? To so, like, I wasn't doing research, but I was noticing things, and like. What I have found in the time since 2020, as you've mentioned with sort of color evasiveness and color blindness, is that it's a lot harder for, like, you have to work even harder to not talk about it now. It just, that doesn't mean people, so what people, some people have decided to just be racist, but, like, <laughs> but still, like, it is, to me, what some of the things I'm now doing with people is sort of coaching people on, like, So when someone throws up a sort of what they call sort of a discursive buffer, like a, you know. Oh, I love that. Yeah. The, 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 it's, I don't think it was coined by them, but they used it, you know, Venia Silva, you know, Venia Silva, right? Oh, Um, please. Yeah. And he used it (laughs) in um, one of his books, but I think it's, it precedes him. But the point being, (laughs) they, um, these are just sort of little phrases people use to stop a discussion about something difficult. Discursive buffer is not specifically about racism, but you can add like racial to it say racial discursive buffer, right? Um, you know, so it'll be like the re and, and honestly those, which I didn't know what what they were called when I started doing this work. Um, that's how I started writing about it because to me, I started, I was not planning and I've said this to you before to write about racism. That was not my intent. Um, It wasn't that I was afraid to, just that's not what I wanted to focus on. I was not sure what I wanted to focus on when I started my doctoral degree. I mean, I wrote them an essay and I got in, obviously, but like, you know, they tell you, you write this, but like, you could change it. Right. And so I was like, all right. So I'm like learning stuff. And I, and I was like, I wanted to really help the sort of free adult programs that I used to work in. I was like, what can I do to make these better? And like, Obviously, it turned out the answer there was a lot of racism. but but I didn't know that. <laughs> and then when I started talking to people about what I found, and I was just reading stuff, I wasn't doing my own studies. They would throw up these what I now know as discursive buffers, not things that are obvious like "I'm not racist," but or "black friends" or whatever, which I think oh are even God. sort of yeah, the sort friends of passe of at this defense. point.
1: Yeah, the friends of color defense.
0: Right. Um, I
1: like, yeah,
0: but. They would do things like I would mention the stuff and they'd say, they, sort of a white virtue thing, as, as, as you might frame it. They would say, I agree with you. They would start with that. that would all, they would start with that, which was always interesting. Hmm. I agree with you. But? It's really important. Not even but. Oh. They would just change what I said because I would say something about racism, right, and how it's important to do X, Y, and Z, or I'd ask them a question. They say, I agree with you. It's really important to mix cultures. And I'm like, that's not what I said. i was <laughs> like, that's, that is not what I said. Oh. And I was like, and that's, that's where my curiosity on these questions started. I was like, yeah. why did you say that? <laughs> because I didn't say culture. Not that culture is that important, but that is not what I said. Yeah. Uh, and I was so, I just started out. That's, asking that's very questions. manipulative and gaslighty. Yeah. And I was just like, wait a second. Or, or I'll be like, I'll talk about something and be like, and someone will say, you know, the real problem is xenophobia. And I'm like. Or like, the real
1: problem is class. Is that yeah, what yeah.
0: And I'm, I mean, like, these are big problems. So it's like, it's a thing that's really hard to literally disagree with. Right? Because, like, of course, well, it's also that easy, is a but you, problem.
1: Well, yeah. So. But the thing is, the way you, I found it's effective to get at that by pointing out that, People are thinking in either or terms where it should be both and let's unpack this. And either or is such a good, you know, kind of that that binary um, oppositional thinking has like done a lot of work in the service of whiteness and liberal democracy. Right. Like it's it's how we've all been socialized to think about things and not the in-betweens and the. You know kind of what what we call in linguistic anthrop- anthropology the emergent possibilities when something's contradictory um but yeah it's it's both and
0: yeah <laughs> we, can, don't hear that.
1: To, we don't even have to like talk about whether race racism is the root or classism is the root like it's it's fucking both excuse my language, but you know let's let's talk so, about so, how they how they how they like articulate together
0: the com- the podcast is rated explicit. Um, <laughs> so the the um I have to choose every time I post an episode. Um
1: let oh, see, okay, good.
0: There's been a couple I posted as clean, but you know, I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, the not being able to hold two ideas in your head at the same time is part of the issue. It's a yeah. very um because if you don't have to hold two ideas in the, in their, in your head at the same time. Then it's much easier to come to an answer.
1: Well, it's also easier to hold on to power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, um, or you know, when people would tell me, like, people, or not even understanding what power means, right? Um, or that you can have one kind of power even if you don't have another kind of power.
1: Oh you know, yeah, like right, right.
0: I I certainly Are you am talking aware. talking about
1: like white white feminists you know
0: yeah. <laughs> and i'm certainly aware of like you know having to really unpack like misogyny and things like that in myself not no. that i was walking around being a proud boy about it but like you know i had to i had a lot of stuff that i got to work on and i still have yeah. to think about that and and you know i i call myself out on things um it's easier for me now because i spent so much time studying various axes of oppression to think about you know, if I use the framework of binaries and hierarchies, it's easier to not fall into the traps, right? Mm-hmm. But I had to do a lot of work. I had to go get a whole bunch of degrees for it, right? So it no, wasn't something I, I was just going to be able to do, <laughs> you know? No. Um, yeah. And like, you know, and I, I think it's a shame sometimes, not sometimes, but like sometimes I think about the fact that it's a shame Uh for, like I was talking to somebody last night about like mental health stuff, right? I don't I don't mean I really mean my I mean I was talk it was me, but I wasn't like t- I wasn't like in a therapy session this is my point. I was just have a conversation. Um sure. 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 and I was talking about how based on all research that has come out, depression tends to work differently in men than it does in women, right? Like the the symptom oh, yeah. manifestation, you know Well
1: same with things like what ADHD they say and A D D spectrum. Yes. Yeah.
0: So the uh you know, part of the reason it took me so long to, to realize that what I was feeling could be related to mental health issues mm-hmm. was that like being kind of angry outwardly is just what men do. <laughs> so I was just like, Oh, well, if I'm angry that's just how just how things are but then like if you really look at it that that's a lot well, of people. I mean ways at least you correctly identify
1: a feeling. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, it took me a long time. I wasn't really identifying when I was like 19, you know, Right. (laughs) Uh, but like, you know, once I started, I got a little bit older and sort of tried to put work into it because I really, when I was in my mid to late 20s, I was like, I would like to have a partner. I need to figure these things out. Uh, (laughs) Well, good
1: for you, because let me tell you, a lot of, you know, men don't work on themselves and then they get, they happen to get these women who do the work for them (laughs) for the rest of their lives.
0: I'm not going to tell I'm not going to tell you my wife didn't push me, but I was yeah. it, it wouldn't have worked if I hadn't started the work myself. Right. Is, yeah,
1: no, I completely understand. And and like it's not
0: bad if your partner pushes you. It's just that you oh. do need to start the work.
1: You need to engage in it. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, as you know, I have a little boy now. He's 15 months old and, you know, he's entering toddlerhood and one of the things I think about all the time is how do I help him to you know kind of understand and express his emotions in a healthy way because one of the most toxic things about you know masculinity and our expectations of of men is is kind of like cutting them off from an emotional self understanding i think so you know that's that's one of the um tasks that i'm really kind of trying to take up for myself is how do i raise this little boy who may or may not you know be tapped into toxic masculinity at various points throughout his life. How do I help him, kind of see or see through that and and kind of do something different, right? Yeah, it's certainly something
0: I think about too, right? You know. Yeah, right. Because uh, you, I mean, you I, have a son too. <laughs> I um and now we can actually talk about things, you know. Um, I mean, obviously you could always talk to him, but I mean, like you now we can have conversations, you know, and like. I think about that a lot with him, especially as a black boy, right? Yeah, um sure. and there are it's a shame in some ways, because there are things that I have to tell him that I know I wouldn't have to tell him if he looked different, right?
1: And yeah. I'm not even talking
0: about a complex conversation about the police, right? Which like I've told him vague things, but he's not really gonna fully understand. Well, um some
1: things I mean when I was in D C it's like, you know, black kids, you know, would get Really beaten really hard by their parents for like grabbing for some Skittles when they're two years old. Right. Um, And, you know, the reasons for which coming from their perspective, it's like they're terrified of what will happen. If I mean, that's that without, that's basically what I'm yeah. talking about.
0: I'm not beating yeah. him, but is that right. the conversation I'm having with him? Not, not, I'm yeah. not, He he's not stealing things from the stores at this point, but like, cause he's mostly too small. No, I mean,
1: this is year just being curious, right? And they're just, their parents are so terrified that they just use really harsh, I think kind of punitive hands on methods to, to teach him not to, or at least that's what I saw in like Washington DC, right?
0: I'm yeah. Sure I what does that, that, but what I, but, I do. And I think so also depends on the, the person's experience themselves with with the police, because I most of my experience I I'm not saying the police have treated me well, but it hasn't been but so bad or hasn't really been violent. They've just sort of been assholes, right? Which is just sort of how things are. But like I was never super scared. I was mostly just annoyed by how they were treating me. I was like, Yeah, oh, but if you on. had
1: reacted in certain ways it probably Well, yeah. But know. I knew
0: that. That's the yeah. thing. Right. I didn't feel in danger in that moment. Not that they couldn't do something, but like they could always do something on the street. So that like, I can't be, I can't walk around like that. I just wouldn't be able to get through the day. But what I mean is what happened once is I got a ticket for drinking in central, in, in, um, Coney Island on
1: really? the beach.
0: Yeah. Huh. And, um,
1: That's well, what, what ha- is that well, what happened on the beach in Coney <laughs> Island? What
0: happened was I, it was my ex-girlfriend and my sister, right? And my sister, who was at the time at NYU and she still is in Brooklyn. So um me and my sister and my girlfriend at the time had been planning like all summer. Like, we gotta go to the beach. We gotta go to the beach. And then finally we lined up our schedules, because I worked Saturdays at that time. So we could only go on Sundays. And so like we oh, finally lined up our schedules and it was like cold and rainy. And we were like, We're still going, damn it. So we went and we were not the only people there. But nobody's getting in the water because it was one of those weird July days when it's like 73 degrees and raining. Right. And so we're just like, all right. Well, guess we'll just drink the wine then. So we're, like, drinking the wine. And, like, everyone's just sitting there drinking. And then it just it sort of – it seemed very much like the police had to get their quota for tickets, right? So they just show up and talk to me. And, like, I did not – they weren't threatening me. They were being really annoying and condescending. But I was just sort of like, I'm just going to sit here and answer their questions. And then, you know, they gave me a ticket for $25. And I was like, all right, you know, whatever. um. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've gotten into it with the cops a couple of times. And I tell you what, like, since I pretty much present as white, I was able to get away with it. Um, one of these times, you know, something happened at the after school program or I was doing research. I, you know, we had to call the police. Um, and the person who called was the site director who happens to be a black man. You know, he sounds like a black man on the phone, doesn't modify his speech. The police didn't come for like an hour. So then I got furious. I became furious, and I called them. And he was being very polite with the cops, just like checking in, right? And I get to get worked up to the point where I'm just like cussing them out on the phone, and they come within like five minutes because they hear a white lady on the phone, right? Um, second time I jumped the styles at MTA, and there was a group of cops on the other side that I didn't see, but I had a MetroCard. Um it was one of those unlimited ones that just were, I was swiping it like 10 fucking times and it wasn't like going through so I was just like I'm going to crawl through I don't give a shit because I had to pick up my dog at daycare and the, the train was coming but they all just like started harassing me and not just harassing me but like messing around I was like you can check my card you could check I tried to swipe it there's cameras here like just leave me the fuck alone right and they just they got into a screaming match with me and I swear to God I thought I was going to be arrested but for whatever reason, they, they let me go. Right. Um, and I guess my point is, is that, you know, I think the cops are assholes, but if I had been a black man in either one of those situations, I would not have been able to position myself that way. And I wonder how it really affects people to have to hold in their anger in those kinds of situations and just kind of take what's delivered, so to speak, you know, cause it's the, it's just, I don't think I could have done it. And I really um, I really feel just, it, it's very tragic when somebody loses their temper in front of the cops, right? And they end up getting killed for it. Um, and I know that they're yeah. there, right? But people, people should be allowed to be angry without fear of
0: being killed by police. The thing is, it's one thing if they were just giving me the ticket, because technically I was breaking the rules. Right. Like if they just said, Here's a ticket But they were it also in knackles, he said, right? Right, I'm saying like, if they had just been like, Oh, that's an open container, here's a ticket, then it would have been annoying. But there wouldn't have really been very much for me to think about. It would right, be like, like all like,
1: right. Just here's the ticket. You know? Yeah,
0: you know. 'Cause like there's times when that's happened that's not necessarily police but like various things where you break a thing and you're like, I guess you know, like a parking ticket. You're like, Well, you know, I guess I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Uh but what they were doing, so then they take they take my license and like they gotta write down my information, which I think that makes sense. Uh, but then, while they're waiting for something, they start talking to me, which is when it got annoying, right? And I'm just what like, what were they saying? They were first. They kept asking me if I had any warrants, any, um, any warrants. Jesus Christ. Right. And because what you're I wanted a to
1: black say, man, so obviously that's the right
0: question to ask. Like <laughs> what I what I wanted to ask was isn't that why you have Well a, no, that's
1: the thing. It's like machine? isn't that the
0: information you're waiting for right now? Like that's, just, that's what they were waiting for, right? I guess they wanted me to yeah. admit it. But like if I had a why would I say yes? Although I guess if I said no and it turned out that I did, then I lied to the cops and it's a problem. Right? So
1: they're trying to amplify the charges.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, so I guess they you know like, I don't know, you know how
1: cop stuff works, so...
0: Yeah, so, you know, that was an interesting situation. But I say all this is that I, I don't like be my son or anything like that, but, like, I do tell him sometimes when we're outside, and I don't know when I started telling him this, if I told him this before, he was particularly verbal, but, like, he seems there to, to have gotten it. Were all these cops white, by the way? Nope. That's the thing. They listen I was gonna
1: to ask it. it. Yeah, because a lot of the cops that I've seen being assholes in New York City are actually not white.
0: These guys were, uh, I guess... I don't really know, but they they seemed like they were latino like from um, one of them was the other one i the other one I don't remember his name, he was brown, but he could have been lot of things, so um, he wasn't black, but uh yeah,
1: none of the cops that I dealt with on the subway were actually white. I know one guy was the the big asshole was, but the rest of them were kind of like there were like five cops I was dealing with five cops that day, and they were we were all screaming back at each other.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Derek. Everybody with Derek Chauvin wasn't white, right? You yeah. Know, all the people who were with him, you know. i So yeah. um, obviously he was. But so anyway, the point I'm making is that with with my son, you know, I I tell him we can't really just act up in public, you know, like we just. I mean, depending this context where you like you're right, but like you know, we just can't. Um, and. I've learned the difference in this is that when he finally took his first flight last year, we went to Jamaica mm-hmm. and I was not, I don't know what concerned, but I was just like, how's he going to deal with it? He was right. fine. He was mostly bored because he's like, get me out of this car seat.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the, like, that is like, really, really hard after yeah. like six months. But it like- was,
0: it was no different than being in a car for him in the sense of mm-hmm. like, I'm bored, let me out of this seat. So he was but he wasn't screaming or crying, he was just like I'm bored, right? Yeah, right,
1: right, right. My son is is similar on the
0: plane. Right. So then on the way back, on the on the way down, there may have been other kids but they were nowhere physically near us on the plane, so we couldn't hear them if they were making any noise, if I don't yeah. remember. The point is I don't remember. If I don't remember, then they weren't making any noise. Right. Uh or there weren't any. So then on the way back, we were a few rows away from, like, a family. I think it was probably, seemed like a couple of siblings and their kids, right? It was like two two women and one man, something like that, right? And, yeah. you know, cousins, basically. And these white kids were just climbing all over the fucking seats. <laughs> just like, it, and the thing is, it was a no yeah. man. Right. They, they weren't necessarily breaking any rules, right? It was their own seat. They're just being annoying. But I'm just thinking to myself, like, Ezel is not inclined, and he's strapped into his seat, but, like, he's also not inclined to do that sort of thing. We ride, part of the reason I ride the subway with him all the time is because, like, we have a way that we ride when we're in public. And I don't mean that we don't talk. He's a. He's not going to be quiet. He is three.
1: Well, 100%. But, have to get him used to doing it in a way that's, like, you know, acceptable public behavior.
0: Right. And 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 that's not even just being black. I think that's how people should just write. I was going
1: to say that it's not just about being black. It's about, you know, socializing your child to, you know, behave appropriately when other people are around you and have to be considered and vice versa. I think that I I do think that there are a lot of people who just don't want to. Let children be children. And then when the child's black, it's like 10 times worse because then it's, it's like becomes this racially marked act where, you know, you know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. And so to (laughs) somehow bring it back to the subject of the writing, uh, I think that there is a tendency because honestly, at this point, I find that You know, this sort of posturing on social media, I get the impulse because, like, if you're just, especially if you're new to it, Mm -hmm. right, to caring about these things, you want to prove it. And there is however much research showing that, like, when you do a new habit that you want to stick to, sharing it with people can make it stick. And so I get part of why. That is not necessarily excusing it, but it's the same as like if you just start working out right and a friend, yeah you, you yeah. see yeah. yeah you, you taking
1: t- like, your long runs with a buddy,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, you start telling somebody and 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 it it helps it stick through that first, whatever the time period is, I think most of the average stuff says it takes like six weeks for a habit to stick or whatever twenty one days, yeah. <laughs> But, like, uh we are not your head. is the point. Right. right? We're not no, your hobby. I, yeah, yeah, I think. Mean, I mean, we're a habit in the sense that you have to do this all the time. You can't just stop. But, like, it's not about you. Yeah. is That's right. Thing.
1: It's not about you.
0: <laughs> but it's hard. Part of this is just a logistical problem, right? How mm. do you tell? And this is something that I've written about. I wrote about it in my book and I write about it and like I mentioned this. It's not the subject of it, but I mentioned this in my writing. There's sort of a catch-22, is that like ultimately we need sort of a collective action, but like collectives don't read books. <laughs> Individuals do. So you have to talk to a person when <laughs> you're saying stuff. It's just like that's just how things work. Uh so um I understand that. It's not even just America, capitalism, whatever. Like, things are going to become somewhat individualized if only because... People tend to consume things alone or whatever, which is, and that's why they all do the book clubs, but then they don't do anything afterwards. So it's just like they, <laughs> like they're they're get, they're always getting half of it, right? They understand yeah. the value of discussing things with other people to unpack yeah. things and so forth, but then it is, they, the they is, don't take is any action steps.
1: Yeah, is it improving their their feeling of self worth, self worth and virtue, or are they helping a black person by reading White Fragility?
0: Right. And I don't, or whatever, don't know. you know? Yeah, yeah, whatever this particular situation is. And I, and like, yeah. I don't, I was thinking about this earlier. I don't know if you've seen American fiction yet, but you should. What is really. it? American fiction. I don't know what that is. It's a movie that just came out. You should look up the trailer. Uh, okay. Jeffrey Wright, you know, the actor Jeffrey Wright, he's the star and he plays a novelist and professor who is, you know, well off, but not successful, right? He's, you know, he's teaching. Um, and then he's got some family stuff that happens at the beginning. So he needs some money and, uh, he just, his, his book, whatever novel, he writes these sort of esoteric novels that have nothing to do with the black experience, right? Um, which is fine, but like, and that, you know, from all accounts are very good, but nobody buys these novels, hmm. right? And so he sees an author played by Issa Rae from Insecure, um, you know, on all the sort of white talk shows talking about her super successful novel, which mm. is like a precious, like, misery porn novel that's called, like, Wee's Lives in the Ghetto or something like that. Um, and he gets that's really,
1: like on Wikipedia as you're talking to me.
0: Yeah. And he gets, he gets really frustrated. So he decides to, she oh, gets Tracy drunk I'll one night. Have too. Yeah. He, 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 she plays his sister. He gets, um, drunk one night, and starts writing a, like, fake novel as a pseudonym that's, like, you know, the most ghetto thing, quote-unquote ghetto thing he can that, think it's
1: of. It's like a stereotypical book that ends up
0: becoming really successful. Right. And then he can't get away from it. Like, it's well. like making him money that he hasn't <laughs> made before and, and all of this stuff, right? I saw it yesterday. I You know, I don't go to a lot of theaters, but he's in daycare, and I'm not working this week. So this is when you're going to go to the movies, right? No, no, no.
1: Same- I do movie Mondays. I don't yeah. teach. I don't have a kid. I do movie
0: in days. Oh, that would be great. I should do yeah. that more often. Um, but anyway, so I think about that. And I think there's there's like, if we're talking about, you know, that movie's about art, but still, I do think any writing is art to some extent, right? And Despite how academia would prefer us to write, I still think writing is art. But um, I think if you're talking about how to reach... I don't want to say a white audience, but I do, I guess, mean a white audience, right? The best way
1: to do it is to confirm the stereotypes they have of you in their head.
0: Right. Well, but, but, but like, I feel like there's three choices, right? There's either, there, there's three groups that they can listen to that are writing towards them. There's, and and I mean people who are, again, meaning well, blah, 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 right? There's a white author, right? That's one group. There's, a black author who's just giving it to them straight—not necessarily black, it could be different groups of color—but you know what I'm saying? Uh, author of color who's just giving it to them, like really telling them really radical stuff. That's like you can write a radical book that's directed at white people; you're just going to be mean. Like my,
1: well, you're, <laughs> my just acad- gonna be, you're just going to be the the angry black person who's way too aggressive and isn't like your black friend that you went to Princeton with or whatever.
0: Right. Which so therefore, is funny. your perspective it is just valid. which is funny because I actually went to Princeton right so um, yeah uh, yeah. Uh, of course I'm just kidding (laughs) no it's funny though right but then there's that middle ground which is where I where you know there's the like a watered down version of a black writer who is well aware of the real issues but is like they're not going to pay attention to me unless I soften what I'm saying Right. And that's the, that's hard, right? It's like, what are you going to, it's like, I could say what I truly feel, but literally nobody's going to hear it. I don't even talk about money. It's just like, no one's going to read it.
1: There's a fourth way. You could um, make it a comedy.
0: Yeah. Well, make yeah, it humorous. But, right. Then you like could the teach your lessons. it's the most effective
1: way, because you're not like, you're not like, you know, on the
0: soapbox, but
1: you're showing people,
0: you know, like what's going on, right? Well, what I was saying is that I try to take sort of in between that second and third way, Yeah. right? Or, I may be average between that because, like, I do think um, my academic work, I go as hard as I can. It's buried under academic language, but what I'm actually saying is I'm pushing it as far as I can. Yeah. Um, because it's all so well cited. I'm not just saying stuff, right? You know. Uh, right. And then, you know, I'm thinking about the book I'm working on right now about neurodivergent students of color, which is entirely based on interviews with adults who were once neurodivergent students of color but were not diagnosed.
1: Okay. Um,
0: and, well, I mean, like me. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 35, right? So Oh, I didn't um, know,
1: realize it was. I thought you were like a teenager
0: for some reason. Nope. Uh, like, so, two years ago, basically, like, three months before I met you. Um,
1: oh, I didn't realize.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, the we're all reflecting on our experiences um, because there is no book like this for teachers yet. Like, how to support us. And part of the repetition is that because we're not diagnosed, it's not going to be follow the IEP. We're not going to have one. If we're not diagnosed, we're not going to have an IEP, right? So, like, or whatever the equivalent is. Yeah,
1: one thing I was asked recently at a talk that I gave about language and race is, like, how do you, with black students, how do you understand kind of the intersections or divergences or differences between having, you know, like, neurodivergent, between neurodivergent tendencies and, you know, um, I don't know how do you, how do you basically, how do you um, help a black student who has neurodivergent tendencies? And like, what if somebody who's categorized as having, you know, a learning disorder doesn't and vice versa? Like, like, you know, what if it goes undiagnosed or what if it's misdiagnosed? How do you handle that? And what's the research on it? I was like, honestly, there is none. <laughs> and that sucks. Yep. Um Because, I, thought I mean, of you know, because you need to, you need to, Help publish and get this stuff out. That, like nobody's done it.
0: That's what I said. What that's how I mean, that's how I got the book deal. I was like, this book. Yeah. I looked it up, and there really isn't one. There is one coming out next month for neurodivergent parents of color. So oh, really? parenting. Okay. So that's interesting. And yeah, I. but there's no like, a school study, right? Like. Right, right, right. But uh, I mean, yeah. in a way, this could yeah. be a companion to that.
1: Sure. Right? Of course, it could. You know, of course, it could. Yeah. Um,
0: because, you know, when you apply for these things, you know, you got to say, like, what are the what are the similar books? I'm like, but there isn't one.
1: <laughs> it's so it's so tricky. Um, You know, I just think back to my experiences in Washington, D.C. And a lot of schools, I mean, a lot of children kind of show things that could be that either are or could be looked at as neurodivergence. But they you know, the problem is. They've got really unstable life circumstances, right? And so they act out in certain ways. And so how do you unpack that? How do you even begin to understand it? What kinds of things can you do to help them get the right kind of support, you know? So that's that's really my – that's the kind of research I would want to see because it's something that I thought about a lot um, when I was working with these kids. It's like, is, are, they, are they suffering from some sort of abuse or trauma that we don't know about or do they actually have, like, you know um, – you know, neurodivergent. Um, I don't know what you call it. Um, per, uh, not Traits. There. Right. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the things I've I saw in my interviews. I didn't do that many. They were just long, right? So you know. Yeah. It, it's. I'm not gonna get. There's not gonna be. Everyone's gonna be different. So I'm trying to do mm-hmm. something quantitative. It's not something that I have the time or energy to do, and it's not the way I do things. But like I just did like long interviews with people, so it's just those interviews remixed repeatedly. Um But. One of the things I noticed is a couple of them mentioned that and they they were all students of color, but, well, they're not students anymore, but, um well, that one's a doctor. So you get what I'm saying. Um They were all different, you know, races or racial identities. And mm-hmm. they said that their teachers, and again, most of the stories are not about some out-and-out racist teachers, right? But the stuff I'm including... Yeah. Yeah. The teachers that treated me poorly I think and I say this in what I've written so far none of them said anything about me being black right it's, and it's and it, it it wasn't even as if they were thinking that and were just holding back right this isn't, but the way it manifested was that like my behaviors and ways of being and so forth were just seen as irritating which to me was a contrast because when I had white cop co- classmates who did similar the same things, thing. they were supported.
1: It, it totally passed.
0: Yeah. 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 They, 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 they were given, you know, I had a classmate who was a friend at the time who, uh, you know, he had focus issues. I don't know if he had nerdy. I don't know what happened with that. But like the point is he, he was disorganized. Right. Yeah. And I remember, I remember watching a teacher saying, Michael, where did we put it? Whatever assignment he'd lost. And and I'm not saying it's bad that she did that, but she ain't do it for me. (laughs) So like, you know, now there's always, uh, would you, would you have even welcomed that if they did that? Maybe not, but you need to try, right? Maybe I would have been resistant because the thing about doing this is you can build up these emotional calluses and you're like, I don't want your help, right? And, but Um, like, you know, that's kind of your job as a teacher is to try to help somebody who doesn't necessarily want any help. So there's that. And then I had a teacher who, when I found something that I thought I'd lost, I held it up and he, he, he like publicly or in the class, not publicly, not on the street, uh, you know, sort of called me out for how disorganized I was. What uh, happen? and I really liked him. Like Uh-oh. I, you know, I still did. After, I mean, the moment sucked and I, to the point where in, in the last, two and a half years since I've been really going through all of this writing and thinking about this stuff like yeah. there were big moments that I knew were bad at the time and I held on to those yeah. but the ones that were from teachers that I otherwise liked it wasn't a full on blocking but I just had tried not to think about it I had the teacher I really liked who um, you know singled me out because I was bad at taking notes It'd be much easier now with a computer, but it's still, I'm still bad at taking I, mean, I can't, I can't take notes. Yeah. But. There's a difference
1: <laughs> between singling someone out and ostracizing them and like drawing them in, you know, and like helping, and that freaking sucks.
0: So, you know, there's always, uh, you know, anyway.
1: like when, when you get treated as a problem student,
0: you know, as opposed to someone that just needs extra help. Right. Well, maybe a big part of the, um, tension was that I did certain things super fast and better than everybody.
1: So they'd
0: so they be like, well, why can't you just? But why can't you just? Because, like, I still
1: – my
0: classmates, again, never really said anything about my race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even just mean, again, in even a, like, liberal whatever way. I mean, they grew up with me, yeah. right? I was mm-hmm. one of the few black kids. And – By the time, only when I got to high school did it become salient salient because they wanted to go to college, right?
1: Right. To start
0: talking about right? Weirdly, um, they didn't have a problem with me when they were talking about affirmative action, if only because they said, well, Justin's smart, so whatever. (laughs) And I'm just like, in the moment, I was like, all right, fine, because I don't really want to deal with it. And another, I'm just like, there's two things being said here. First of all, what are you saying about other black people? <laughs> and so, yeah. but I, I, it so many years later to figure I was like, in the moment, I was like, I don't want to deal with this right now. I can't. <laughs> I rare, going to right. college. Um, but they were all being sent to not the like college admission scandal stuff, but like they were going to tutors. They were going to this. They were they doing all support. that.
1: They had the support in place.
0: Right. Here's the thing. My parents had money. So if I needed tutors, they could have sent me to them. I didn't need them and I didn't even study and I did better in the SAT than they did. Like the funny thing about it is that they were right in the sense that I did not actually need help in that sense. In that set, in that skill set, no. Right. Um, I needed social help from the school, but I did not need help with the things that the schools cared about, like the test stuff. And since they only cared about that stuff, then the fact that I was struggling in the back of the room when I wasn't making jokes because I couldn't pay attention you know uh, didn't register for them. Now I assume things are slightly different now but they're not that different. Well, I don't I mean them in them terms now. of racism I mean, in terms of neurodivergence and all that oh. but like we're still yeah. underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed with quote unquote bad disorders right? Mm. Emotional emotionally disturbed and all that stuff right? right? Yeah. What's the phrase and I have to go in a second but what's the Yeah I was going to say we
1: should wrap up
0: yeah, I know. Um I don't know, I don't get to talk to you that often. So
1: I know get but we, of these things but we, yeah, we'll have to like wrap, wrap up or do another session. Just not a podcast but like a
0: catch up. We always just talk. I don't know. At this point, Jen, and I said this in the intro that I recorded before I got on. I uh after twenty twenty I really don't have that many friends. And I don't mean that in like a in a you know, Scrooge way. It's just like when I, I, I'm trying to use that word very carefully now. Yeah. And, and not just connections. I have a lot of connections and people I know. That's not the same thing as friends. I agree. And people where like, I, I, uh, I don't have to stand on ceremony and stuff. And I think that a lot of it is the, you know, I wasn't sure at first because like you said in on here and in the article you know, I certainly didn't know you were Filipina before you told me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, who is this Italian girl? It? Um, <laughs> Everybody
1: thinks it's Italian. That's hilarious.
0: Uh, and I was like, oh, so she's one of those who's doing the work. Okay, she's doing it.
1: Oh, that. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> uh,
0: but but then when, when I was like, oh, okay, okay. So, you know, But But you have to read my
1: book. There's that, there's that whole part where, you know, one of my students is like, she a white girl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's, I'm never going to be mistaken for that, but it is interesting. Right. Racialization is contextual. Yeah. What, what I get called depending on where I am and what I'm doing. They thought I was from like, they, the funny thing is in South Korea, before they knew I was a teacher, the, the, the order went, Philippines, they thought I was Filipino, right? Really? Which, which is funny Well, I could
1: see reading. that. I could see that. I could,
0: but you know why? And this is the point I made in the introduction to the book I'm writing right now. Yeah. Wherever I am, they think I am the colonial subject, unless I'm in a black. Or the darkest
1: place. version of what they know.
0: Right, because Filipinos yeah. are a very big migrant worker group right. in South Korea, For right? Sure.
1: Yeah. After that,
0: they thought I was a soldier because of the U.S. Oh. Right? And I'm like short and muscular. Yeah. And then they were and then I was like, No, I'm a teacher, they're like, Oh, okay, fine. Anyway, Doctor Delfino, I thank you for your time today. Uh certainly have an episode this long in a bit, which is good. Uh, because Great. I've been doing shorter episodes and I haven't had a chance to really interview. it. I've done a bunch of like solo episodes and nobody oh, listens yeah. to the ones where I'm just talking. <laughs> but, oh. but I tell I tell people I'm just like, look, I'm trying to keep up the the schedule. I hate when my podcasts just take months off. So oh, okay. I'm just I'm just gonna put out an episode of my ideas and that's oh. gonna be fine. Uh, but thanks for being here.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me. All
0: right, you have a nice day. To chat with
1: you. You too. I'll talk to you soon.